Lord, you are our rock and our salvation. Apart from your grace, we have no hope. In this world, we stand condemned. But because of your grace, through the finished work of Jesus, we receive him by faith and thus are not condemned but justified. Your grace is wonderful, God. Your grace is undeserved. And I pray that we, your people, would sing your praises forever and ever and ever because you are worthy to receive all praise, honor, glory, and worship. This morning, that is indeed what we have gathered together to do, to praise your name through song, to hear your word read, to pray your word, to hear your word proclaimed, to celebrate your word visibly in the sacraments of the Lord's Supper. God, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would minister to us this morning, but not just us, God. I also pray that you would minister to other churches on the south side of Indianapolis, that they would be faithful in their gospel proclamation. I pray for the pastors and shepherds of those local congregations, that they would care well for those entrusted to them. I pray, God, that they would stand boldly for your word, for your truth. And Lord, I pray that they would speak tenderly to your people. They would speak the truth and love, and thus glorify you and minister well to your people. And Lord, we also want to pray for those who are in positions of leadership, governance around our country, whether here in the state, here in our county, across the country. God, I pray that they would govern according to your word. I pray, God, that you would open their eyes to the foolishness of the ways of this world and that they would govern according to your word. God, and I pray that as they would do that, that we, your people, would live peaceable and quiet lives and see fit to proclaim the gospel far and wide. God, for those who call LifePoint Church their home, I pray for those in our midst who are afflicted, who are sick, who are in the hospital, who are awaiting surgeries. God, I pray that you would comfort them pray that you would minister to them your grace, even right now. God, and I pray for those of us who are here this morning that might be too comfortable. I pray that you would afflict us, but don't afflict us for affliction's sake. Afflict us so that you might build us back up by your grace. And now, God, as we turn our attention to the proclamation of your word, I pray that you would be honored, that Christ would receive the glory that he is due and that your people would be satisfied in your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be here with you all this morning. We're going to be in Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 through 5, so I'd encourage you to go ahead and be turning there in your Bibles. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. Habakkuk is one of the 12 minor prophets. The list of the minor prophets goes like this. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. If after the service you want me to wrap that to you, I would be more than happy to. But again, we'll be in Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 through 5 this morning. So would you please stand with me as we honor the Lord in the reading of his holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Habakkuk chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. Hear the word of the Lord. 
And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. This is the word of the Lord. You could be seated. Thank you. So if we were to hop into a time machine and travel back to the late 300s AD to Milan, which is a city in Italy, we would meet a man named Ambrose. Ambrose was a pastor and he oversaw several churches in the city of Milan and he was known for his immense kindness his generosity to the poor, his meekness, and his care for those who were entrusted to him. And he was known for his preaching. I mean, the dude could preach. One writer has said, Ambrose spoke the truth and he spoke it well with beauty and power of expression. Ambrose was a righteous man who loved the Lord, who loved the Lord's word and loved the Lord's people. And because of that, he could not stand heresy. In particular, the heresy of Arianism, which taught that God the Son was the first and best of created beings, but still a created being nonetheless. He was not true God of true God. He was not the creator of all things. And Arianism had already been declared a heresy before Ambrose's time, but it still had a strong following, especially amongst the political elite. And in 385, the battle between Ambrose and the Arians, it finally comes to a head. The empress at that time, her name was Justina. She was a covert Arian. She was an Arian in disguise. And she attempted to promote the Arian heresy amongst the churches in Milan. She made some royal demands of Ambrose. And here were two of them. Stop speaking and preaching against Arianism and give up some of your churches so that the Arians can have a place to worship. Stop speaking out against Arianism because that was her jam, right? That was her heresy. And as Ambrose the preacher was preaching against Arianism, it really kind of messed up her street cred, right? And then the second demand was give up one of your church buildings so that we could have a place to call home. And for Ambrose, it was a no-go on both of those accounts. That didn't stop Justina from trying to take what Ambrose would not willingly give. So... During Holy Week of 385, she sent an imperial guard to surround and seize one of the oldest churches in Milan. But you see, Ambrose and those under his care were actually in the church at that time. So they were trapped in because the guards would not allow anyone out and they would not allow anyone in. So seeing as how they couldn't leave, what did they do? Well, they spent the whole day preaching and praying and singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And they continued to do that all throughout The night, Ambrose proclaimed from the book of Job the virtues of faith and patience in the face of suffering. And when threatened with execution, Ambrose responded, I hope you may be able to carry out your threat. I will suffer like a bishop as I take my stand, and you may act the part of an usher in removing my body from this place. Ambrose was willing to lay down his life for the glory of God, for the good of God's word, and the good of God's people. In divine providence, however, it didn't come to that. It didn't come to that. Justina called off her guards. She wised up, 
and disaster was averted. And Ambrose went on living in Milan, ministering and defending the faith for another 12 years. And under his preaching, the greatest theologian of the early church, Augustine of Hippo, was converted. Now more on Augustine later, but for now, I hope that you see how the whole situation with Ambrose and the Arians is similar to what we've been reading about in the book of Habakkuk. You've got pagan forces bent on destroying God's people, and they're coming. They're at the gates, as it were, and both Ambrose and Habakkuk must determine how they are going to respond to what is going on right before their very eyes. But you see, there are also differences between the two situations. And I want to point to two differences in particular that track along with where we've been in the book of Habakkuk. So the first difference, while Ambrose and the Christians under his care suffered for their faithfulness to the truth of Scripture, we're told in Habakkuk chapter 1 of the injustices and the wickedness Habakkuk sees within the covenant community. They had perverted God's law. God's law was going forth paralyzed. Sins being committed by the Jewish leaders themselves who should have been caring for and shepherding the people of God. That's the first difference. And here's the second difference between Ambrose and Habakkuk. While Ambrose experienced relief from the Empress Justina's imperial thugs by the grace of God, Habakkuk is given no hope that there would be the same kind of relief from the eventual onslaught of the Babylonians. Their coming is certain, very similar to what the Lord said to Jeremiah. The Babylonians are coming. It is for sure. And Habakkuk, he seemingly throws up his hands saying, You're from everlasting, God. You're eternal. We're your people. If no one can conquer you, then no one can conquer us. You may have brought the Babylonians upon us as reproof, but full-out destruction? What? I mean, you can't die, therefore we can't die. Right? You won't let that happen, will you? You'll do something. You won't just sit by idly while they swallow up those Babylonians, a more righteous people than them. You won't let that happen, will you? That's Habakkuk's cry. And so Habakkuk takes his stand on the watchtower, the prophet of God, ready to hear how the Lord would respond to his cry and ready to take that message to the people of God. And that brings us to the Lord's answer to Habakkuk's second cry, beginning in verse 2. The Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on the tablets, so he may run who reads it. And now this vision that Habakkuk receives, it likely extends all the way through chapter 2, which includes promised destruction for God's enemies, promised destruction for the people of Babylon. And we'll consider those promises in more detail next week. But here we're told that Habakkuk is to write down what he sees. He's to do so plainly. He's to make it plain on the tablets. Just like Moses was to make plain the law of God for the people of God in Deuteronomy chapter 1. We read these words. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain or make plain this law. So too is Habakkuk called to make plain the words of the Lord to God's people. And just as the Lord gave Moses his very words inscribed on the tablets, 
We read that in Exodus in the book of Deuteronomy. So too is Habakkuk to write the very words of the Lord on the tablets. And as the word of God is made clear, the word of God is to be heralded forth, proclaimed forth to strengthen the people of God. But unlike Israel on the plains of Moab, preparing to enter into the land of promise to defeat foreign nations, the word of Yahweh here in Habakkuk chapter 2 is for a people who's about to be expelled from the promised land by a foreign nation. And God's word in both circumstances is for the good of God's people because it strengthens us to both stand strong when trouble surrounds us and empowers us to courageously move forward into the dark. I think a a scene from J.R.R. Tolkien's work, The Two Towers, it's the second book in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, illustrates this point nicely. So I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version. There's a chapter in The Two Towers, it's entitled Helm's Deep. And in that chapter, we read about the armies of Rohan and the armies of Isengard. Armies of Isengard are bad. Armies of Rohan are good. Armies of Isengard contain orcs and Urukai, ugly enemies. The armies of Rohan are those who are fighting the armies of Isengard. And and Isengard is pushing and pushing and pushing on the armies of Rohan, and they eventually get to Helm's Deep. And they're there, and they're, they're reminded of a promise. As long as there's an army of men defending Helm's Deep, Helm's Deep will never be overtaken. And yet, the armies of Isengard are still there. They're pushing in harder and harder and harder, stronger and stronger and stronger, pushing them further and further back into the mountain. And then when they seem to have lost all confidence, the hope, the remembrance of the promise that as long as men are guiding, guarding, uh, guarding Helm's Deep, there will not be the possibility of Helm's Deep to be overrun. So what do they do? They push out forward in the battle. They push out forward against the armies of Isengard, and the armies of Isengard are eventually swallowed up as Gandalf returns as he promised he would. We need to be reminded of the truth of God's word, brothers and sisters, because in both circumstances, whether it be the armies are at our door or we are going forth taking the light into dark places, God's word strengthens us to stand firm and to move forward. And in Habakkuk chapter 2, the people of God need to hear this word if they are going to face what is before them. Now, how would the people of Judah hear this message from the Lord? How would they hear? What's the posture of their heart? Which is really asking, what's the hearer's attitude? And we see that in verses 3 through 5. Will they display a humble faith or an arrogant heart? So let's look first at the arrogance of the wicked in verses 4 and 5, and then we'll consider the faith of the righteous in verses 3 and 4. So verses 4a and 5 describe the attitude of the arrogant. There we read, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who's never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. It's interesting, at least to me, that Babylon is not directly mentioned here in verses 4 and 5, and that's probably because the kind of arrogance described in these verses is not limited to the Babylonians, but is true of all of the sons and daughters of Adam throughout history. Nonetheless, Babylon is surely the most immediate subject. Babylon was puffed up Babylon was bent in on herself. Babylon was drunk with violence. 
Babylon lacked self-control. Babylon was never content. But again, that kind of arrogance, that kind of puffed-up spirit is not unique to Babylon. Israel herself displayed a similar kind of arrogance in Numbers chapter 14. It's actually the only other text where we get that verb for puffed up used in all of the Old Testament here in Numbers chapter 14. And in Numbers chapter 14, we read that after hearing the bad report from 10 of the 12 spies that were sent out to scope out the land of Canaan, you remember their report, right? The people in the land of Canaan were like giants in comparison to the people of Israel. The people of Israel were like little grasshoppers. And what do huge people do to little grasshoppers? They crush them, right? That's the report of 10 of the 12 spies. And in light of that report, the people cry, they weep, and they forget the promises of God, and they rebel against their God. They thought to themselves that it would have been better For them to remain slaves in Egypt, at least there their bellies were full from leeks and onions. Would have been better for them to remain in Egypt in slavery to Pharaoh than to die at the hands of the Canaanites. And because of their grumblings, the Lord promises that the whole generation that leaves Israel will die in the wilderness. That seemed unthinkable to the people of Israel. We can't die in the wilderness. You won't see that we die in the wilderness, will you? I mean, do you hear the echoes of Habakkuk in Numbers chapter 14? So what do the people do in Numbers chapter 14? Well, when Moses tells them that they're all going to perish in the wilderness, they mourn, they rise up early in the morning, and then they go up to the heights of the hill country saying, here we are, here we are. We'll go out and take this land. We can do it. Moses warns them, though, saying that if they go up, they will surely be crushed. In other words, the Lord's not with you. And in verses 44 and 45 of Numbers chapter 14, we read, But they presumed. It's that verbal form of puffed up. They were puffed up to go up to the heights of the hill country. Although neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp, Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them all the way to Hormah. Arrogance runs deep, both in Israel and in Babylon, and it won't go unpunished. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord, and be assured he will not go unpunished. We just saw how the Lord disciplines his people in Numbers chapter 14, and next week we'll see the certain destruction of arrogant Babylon. But for now, but for now, if we're honest with our own hearts, brothers and sisters, we display less of the humility and meekness of Jesus and more of the arrogant and puffed up spirit displayed in Israel and Babylon than we'd even like to admit. Arrogance comes so easy to us. Arrogance comes so easy to us. We all think too highly of ourselves because we think too lowly of God. Our self-perception is too large because our God-perception is too small. Arrogance, it blinds us to our need for the gospel because it argues that whatever our plight might be before God, whatever our problems might be before God, we can get out of it ourselves. We're good, God. I don't need you on this one. I've got it taken care of. 
I mean, it reminds me of a Chinese finger trap. You guys know what Chinese finger traps are, right? You've got them, you, you, you see it laying on a, a coffee table, and you pick it up and you go, I wonder what this is. So you put your fingers in it, right? And what you find is that your fingers are trapped. And then when you try to pull your fingers out, it just gets tighter and tighter and tighter. So you work harder and harder and harder to get your fingers out of that until you finally realize that you have gotten yourself stuck in a 25-cent Chinese finger trap, right? And, and you don't want people to know this, so you turn around and you hide it from everybody, and you're still trying to get yourself out. And then you realize at the very last moment that there is no hope for you. <laughs> you have to have somebody else help you out of that Chinese finger trap, right? Arrogance is like a Chinese finger trap. It grabs you and it keeps you, and it keeps you from seeing your need for the gospel and the grace that God provides for his people. And that was the state of Babylon and Israel before her. So, I want to ask, will we be puffed up and bent out of proportion like Babylon, like Israel? Because if that's our state, then we will find no need for the word of God nor the grace that God offers, but neither will we find the freedom that God has promised in His Word by His grace in His Son. Will we be, like wicked Babylon, deceived and inebriated, gathering and gathering and gathering some more, though never feeling satisfied? Such arrogance finds bloated bellies without contentment. Such arrogance finds that it may have gained the world, but it has forfeited and lost its soul. Ultimately, we see in verses 4 and 5 of Habakkuk chapter 2 that though the wicked seem to prosper, destruction lies in wait for them as they go on displaying such arrogance, going from bad to worse. But in contrast, the arrogance of the wicked, we're told in verses 3 and 4 how the righteous receive the word of God. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. But the righteous shall live by his faith. In contrast to the arrogant who could give a rip about the promises of God. They could give a rip about the promises of God, the goodness of God, the grace of God, the Son of God. The righteous are called to wait on God with a steadfast trust. And what I'd like to do as we consider the faith of the righteous is really just ask three questions. Here's the first question. How are we declared righteous? The second question. How do the righteous behave in this world? Third question. What is the hope of life that God promises to the righteous? Three questions. How are we declared righteous? How are the righteous to behave in this world? And what is this life that God promises to the righteous? So the first question, how was one declared righteous by God? Which is really just another way of asking, how are we justified before God? That's an important question because the Lord tells Habakkuk that the righteous will live. The righteous will live. So if they desire life, whatever that life actually entails, they must be righteous, which means to be viewed as a perfect keeper of the covenant, one who has displayed a faithfulness to the God of the covenant and to his commands. But as you hear that, you should be thinking, hold up, wait a minute, something ain't right. Because we know, biblically and experientially, from experience, that no mere human is able to keep the law of God perfectly. 
since the fall, no mere human is able to keep the law of God perfectly and thus be declared by God to be righteous on account of his or her works. Paul even says as much in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 20. None is righteous, no, not one. For by works of the law, doing works of the law, no human being will be justified. No human being will be declared righteous because of their law-keeping. So we are not declared by the God of the universe to be in the right before him because of the works that we've done. If our status, if our standing before a holy God was based on our works, even our best of works, then what is the verdict that we receive? Condemned. It is not justified. And what is the sentence that is given to the condemned? Death. Physical death and spiritual death that lasts forever. Suffering under the just punishment of a holy God forever and ever. That is the sentence for the condemned. So we have to ask, how then are we justified before a holy God? How does the holy God of the universe declare sinners to be righteous? And the answer is, it's how God's people have always been justified and declared righteous by God. It's by faith alone in the promised one. For old covenant saints, it was faith in the promised one who was to come. And for new covenant saints, it's faith in the promised one who has come. It's faith alone in Christ alone who earned a righteousness that we could not earn. It's by faith alone that God's people are justified and declared righteous. We think back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. It's really a passage that kind of echoes into our passage for this morning. It reverberates into Habakkuk chapter 2. Abraham was a man who, though his body was as good as dead, he believed God's promise that life would come from that dead body and that his offspring would be more numerous than the stars of the sky, more numerous than the dust of the earth, more numerous than the sands of the sea. And as Abraham believes the promises of God, we read in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, these words, And he, that is Abraham, believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. God declared Abraham to be righteous by faith alone and not by his own works. I'd encourage you this afternoon, go home, read Genesis chapters 12 through 25, and see if those works that Abraham performs are worthy enough for his justification. If they're good enough for him to stand before a holy God, justified. And likewise, here in Habakkuk chapter 2, Judah was called to trust the God whose promises are sure and not in their covenant obedience, not in their law-keeping. Because if you read Habakkuk chapter 1, you will see that their law-keeping is perverted. It's not good. It's broken. It's not perfect, which is why the Lord proclaims to Habakkuk that the righteous by faith will live. The Apostle Paul, he quotes Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, twice in his letters. And in both of those passages, God's promises find their fulfillment in Christ. He is the yes and amen to all of God's promises, and he is the object of our faith. He is the one in whom we trust. So the first time we see Paul quoting Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, is in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. And there Paul describes how the gospel displays the saving righteousness of God in Christ. 
which is God's righteousness to his promises in the past to save a people and to provide that people with a righteousness that they themselves don't have. They need that righteousness if they are to stand before a holy God. And the righteousness that is offered is the righteousness of Christ that we receive by faith. And then in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, it's the second passage that Paul quotes. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, it says, Now it is evident that no one is justified, declared righteous, before God by the law. No one is declared righteous because of their law-keeping. And Paul points to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. The reason for that is because the righteous by faith will live. Now, if we were to bring it all together, here's how we should answer that first question. How is one justified? How is one declared righteous before a holy God? We are justified. We are declared righteous, not because of our works. Our works will never merit one bit of favor before a holy God. Even your best works will never merit one bit of favor before the God of the universe. We are justified. We are declared righteous by faith. A humble resting in and receiving of Christ alone who earned for us our salvation. Philippians chapter 3 verses 8 and 9. These are Paul's words. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them all as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, because a righteousness from the law is impossible for those in Adam. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the last Adam, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here's the glorious good news of the gospel. I hope you hear this. Our sins are counted to Jesus, and Jesus' righteousness, his covenant keeping, his perfect track record of obedience is counted as ours. Okay, I'm going to say that again. i got to say it again. Our sins, the sins we commit, the sins you committed this morning and yesterday and the day before that, They're counted to Jesus. Jesus bore them on the tree. And Jesus' righteousness, his perfect law-keeping, his never disobeying the law of God, keeping it perfectly, is counted to our account. We stand righteous before the holy God of the universe because Jesus gives us a righteousness that actually justifies. In Christ, in Christ, you and I are declared Perfect covenant keepers. Even though we know we're not. We know we're not, but we are declared perfect covenant keepers because Jesus has kept the covenant on our behalf. What you and I could never do, Jesus did. And in him, what is his is ours by grace. We are justified. How how are we declared righteous? We are declared righteous by faith alone in Christ alone unto the glory of God alone. Okay, second question. What does the behavior of the righteous look like? What does it look like for those who are declared righteous by God to behave in this world? Well, from Habakkuk chapter 2, it looks like a steadfast trust and confidence in the God whose promises are sure to pass. 
The Lord says in verse 3 that his word awaits the appointed time, which just means that it awaits that time in which God himself will fulfill his word. But for Habakkuk and the rest of the righteous, that time is still some ways off in the future. And until then, they must walk faithfully with their God. To quote Paul here, they're working out their salvation with fear and trembling in the midst of so many troubles that are before them. Habakkuk will have to look upon the wickedness of Judah just a little while longer until Babylon, wicked Babylon, is used as a tool in the hand of God to bring chastisement upon the people of God. You can consider Babylon a divine paddle in the hand of a sovereign God. And then Habakkuk will have to wait even longer to see the punishment brought upon Babylon. And you know what? In all likelihood, Habakkuk won't even see Babylon punished. He will die before then. So he must receive God's word by faith and then walk faithfully with his God. A faithful walking that flows from the faith that we have in our God. Waiting as God, God's word hastens towards its fulfillment. Running toward its goal. It will not lie because the God who speaks it cannot lie. If it seemed to be taking too long, well then Habakkuk just needs to reset his watch to God time. And be reminded that the fulfillment of God's word arrives precisely when God means for it to. It's never, ever late. And that reminds me of a, another scene from Lord of the Rings. This time from the first book, The Fellowship of the Ring. First book in that trilogy. And maybe you've seen this, this movie, The Fellowship of the Ring. Maybe you've read the book. But in, in both the book and the movie, Gandalf is traveling towards the Shire. And the Shire is where Bilbo Baggins and Frodo Baggins live. And as Gandalf is coming into the Shire, Frodo kind of pops out and looks at him and says, you're late. To which Gandalf responds, I am never late, Frodo Baggins. I arrive precisely when I mean to. Now, I didn't hear that voice when I read it, but when I saw the movie, that's what it sounded like. So. <laughs> but we need to hear this too. The fulfillment of God's word and all of his promises by God himself, they are never, ever, ever late. We often perceive it to be so because we have determined that we should be the arbiters of timeliness. We think we know when it's good and right for God to act in this world. Well, if he'd just consult us every once in a while, we'd make sure that he's never charged with being late. We'd always make sure that he's on time. How arrogant of us. That's not our place. Our place is not to tell God how he should act in this world. Our place is to receive by faith the promises of God contained in his word and to live according to the truth of those promises that we believe. And yes, we will long along the way for God to bring to pass all of his promises. We will long along the way for Jesus to split the skies and make his home with us forever. We cry out for such things. We remind ourselves of those truths and when we sing songs with words like, do you feel the world is broken? We do. And do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But don't you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. If the Lord should tarry 50 years, 100 years, 500 years, 1,000 years, and I really hope that he doesn't tarry another 1,000 years. But if he should tarry that much longer, we are called to wait patiently in steadfast trust on the Lord. And in Habakkuk chapter 3, we'll see how Habakkuk's memory of God's grace displayed in the past produces a steadfast trust 
in the face of trials now and a longing for future grace. So we want to encourage you this morning to remember God's past acts of grace for you. How Christ called you out of a far country when you were happy slumming it with the pigs. How he cleans you up and gave you new righteous robes. He made sure they fit and he gave them to you. How he's been preserving you by his mighty right hand, even right now. How he has displayed his kindness in pouring out grace upon grace upon grace, even when things were chaotic around you, even when everything around you seemed impossible. Remember how he's promised to never leave you nor forsake you. And we know that his promises are sure because the grave is empty. Remember how he gives to us every single spiritual blessing in the heavenly places so that we might rest content in him. So our contentment might be in him and never ultimately in those around us so that we can actually love them from a heart that glorifies God and is for the good of others. Remember God's works for you and allow that to produce in you present steadfast trust and a faithful pursuit of our promise-keeping God even as we long for future grace. That's the behavior of the righteous in this age, trusting in the word of the, the Lord that hastens to its end. The third and final question from verses 3 and 4, what kind of life is offered by God to the righteous? It's fascinating, to me anyway, it's fascinating that the Lord's words here to Habakkuk, the righteous by faith will live, are spoken to a people who would experience utter destruction at the hands of Babylon, not even a full generation later. Lamentations, which was written not too long after the book of Habakkuk, recounts the utter destruction that Judah experienced at the hands of the Babylonians. Death lined the streets of Jerusalem. Chaos went unchecked as the Lord was using Babylon to bring discipline and judgment upon his people. That's what awaits the people in Judah. And yet the Lord announces to Habakkuk that the righteous by faith will live. Now what kind of life offered sustains a people surrounded by an enemy who brings nothing but death and destruction? When death is ever before you, what kind of life sustains you? What kind of offer of life sustains you in that moment? And I would argue that the only hope that sustains in that moment is the hope of resurrection life. A life that goes beyond this age and lands in the age to come and yet is experienced even in part now. The righteous in Habakkuk's day, they continued to face the threat of death and more likely than not, they would have tasted its bitterness. It's likely that the righteous within Jerusalem and maybe even Habakkuk himself taste death at the hands of the Babylonians. But you see, the hope of resurrection life offered to us by God in Christ, it removes the sting of death That is what sustains a people who are about to die. The knowledge that death does not have the last word because the God of life gives life to all who are righteous by faith. And again, we've seen, where does our righteousness come from? It comes from Jesus. Where does this hope of life come from? It comes from Jesus. Everything comes from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, to God's people. In John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, we read these words. 
Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is the hope of resurrection life. So do you believe this? Do you believe that in Christ, though death may come, life comes after it? Jesus has life in and of himself, and therefore he offers life to all who believe in him. It's a life that we experience now, knowing the Father through the Son by the Spirit. It's it's eternal life that we experience in part now. And when the darkness of death threatens to swallow us up, when we are facing death, the life Jesus gives sustains us because he's gone before us into the grave. Jesus has gone before us into grave. The grave. He's gone into that dark place. He's turned on the lights and he has plundered death itself. And the life that Jesus offers will be experienced fully when he comes again in glory. That's the hope of resurrection life. So, to summarize verses three and four, though the fulfillment of God's word seems far off and the valley of death is dark, we must wait patiently on the Lord. Because he extends the hope of resurrection life to his people. It is a life that death cannot ultimately extinguish, beloved. Though death surrounds the righteous and threatens to swallow us up, God's people will see God in the land of the living. We will see God in the land of the living. That is Psalm 27. Hang your hat on that psalm. So to end where we started, Augustine of Hippo. And I bet some of y'all were thinking, is he ever coming back to Augustine? He said he was coming back. When's he going to come back to Augustine? Well, here we are. Okay. Augustine of Hippo was converted under the preaching of Ambrose in 387 AD, two years after Ambrose's stand against Justina and the Arians. And I love divine providence, don't you? Because if Ambrose would have died in 385, Augustine would have never had the gospel proclaimed to him by Ambrose, which was the means by which the Lord was going to convert the greatest theologian of the early church. Divine providence is so wonderful. Now, Augustine would go on to write his magnum opus, his his greatest work, The City of God. He writes it about 40 years after his conversion. If you write over a thousand pages, it takes a while to get that done. And The City of God... Augustine speaks of the eternal life that those in Christ will experience, and this is what he says. How great that happiness will be, where there will be no evil, where no good thing will be lacking, and where we shall be free to give ourselves to the praise of God, who will be all in all. True peace will be there, for no one will suffer enmity, either within himself or from anyone else, because the arrogant and the proud, they're not there. Our reward will be God himself. Our greatest reward, brothers and sisters, is God himself. God is our greatest reward in the gospel. Our great reward will be God himself who has promised himself to us, the one whom nothing is better or greater. God will be the end of our desires. He will be the goal of all our desires. He will be the the purpose for everything that we do. God will be the end of our desires. He will be seen without end, loved without stint, praised without weariness, and this duty, this affection, this employment of our whole persons in worshiping, glorifying, and loving God will, will, like eternal life itself, be common to all who are His, who have received His Son by faith. This hope of resurrection life that sustains us when chaos and death surround us This hope of resurrection life is entered into, let me remind us this morning, not because of the good works that we have done, 
Our entrance into the kingdom of God and its consummation is and forever will only be the righteousness that Christ gives to us that we receive by faith. Amen?